Good evening. My name is Vivian Catfield, and this is Haunted Muse, a podcast that showcases my writing work in the horror, paranormal, supernatural, and southern gothic genres, as well as the folklore and history that inspired it. This is episode 24 of Haunted Muse, and the fifth episode featuring my novel, Skeleton's Blood, read in a weekly serial format. Okay, here we go. Skeleton's Blood, Chapter 5. Back down the hall in his own office suite, Vice President Colton Merritt rang for his driver to take him to the hospital. His actual desk chair already occupied by Nick Gallinus, his chief of staff, Merritt propped himself against the windowsill, frowning out at the gathering snow clouds in the gray New England sky. I take it Dragon Lady has granted you a reprieve for the afternoon. Colton put down his cell. She's not a dragon lady. More like an armadillo. Hard shells only on the outside. Not that bad, really, if you just try to like her, but yes, I'm going to see Beth now. You can handle my calls for the rest of the day, right? Nick's expression relaxed into a sad smile as Colton's hands found his shoulders. Nick pointed at the always sore spot around his top cervical vertebrae. As Colton massaged slowly upward, Nick rolled his head from side to side. I always do. Will Eliza Jane be there? Yeah, unfortunately. I'll give you a call as soon as she leaves, okay? Nick tilted his head all the way backward so that he was looking up into Colton's face. Colton's cornflower blue eyes were hopeful and pleading, like a cat who'd knocked the cookie jar off the counter and was worried that he'd be in trouble. Nick straightened and shrugged off Colton's hands gently. It has to be. I went ahead and told the chef we wouldn't be needing him tonight, too. Figured you'd be in late, or not at all. He rotated around to face Colton, who had shrunk back into the window seat. Colt, really, I'm not upset. I'm just worried for you. And for Beth. She's a beautiful girl. Talented. There's just something she's... He searched for the right word. Missing. Nick reached out to put his hand on Colton's knee, but he recoiled. It's me, Nick, Colton said, running his hands through his thick, wavy blonde hair so that it stood out wildly on end. It's always been me. I'm the problem. She needs a father. No, wait. Colton held out his hand to stop Nick from interrupting. Ever since she was a kid, I could feel that she knew her mother and I weren't real. Even before we told her. That's the source of it, I think. It always has been. The drugs, this constant need to see and be seen, and everything else. When you start life as a lie, the whole thing seems false. And you just need to escape, you know? This was an old argument. Not as old as their relationship, but definitely at least 19. The same age as Beth. Knowing better than to physically approach him, Nick ventured out instead with a reason. Colt, most of the kids in America have parents who don't love each other. Who would rather be somewhere else and with anyone else? But no one could have been a better father to Beth than you've been. Certainly not that dirtbag televangelist sperm donor that Laura Jane slept with the maker. Colton avoided eye contact, but Nick continued. Man, you were there for more of her childhood than her mother was. If you won't look at me when I'm talking to you, then look at this. Nora picked up a large frame from Colton's desk, the digital kind in which pictures flipped by in a sort of montage. Holding it out, Nick challenged him. 
Show me Liza Jane's face here. Point to one time in which something meaningful happened in Beth's life that she thought it was more important to be there than in New York and that goddamned awful soap opera. If you can do it, it'll totally allow you to wallow in unrelenting self-blame as long as you want. One time. I dare you. Nick shook the frame so emphatically that Colton took it, just to get it out of his face. As the photos scrolled by, he had to admit that Nick was right. Every picture was just him and Beth. Colton walking Beth into school on her first day. Beth at her first dance recital, with Colton carrying a bag full of costumes. The last snap was of both of them making goofy, ta-da, faces on either side of the sign in front of the RISD apparel design building during Parents Weekend just a few months ago. Colton put the frame back face down on the desk and brushed past Nick to pick up his peacoat, which lay casually thrown across a chair. Liza Jane isn't the most important person missing from those pictures, he said, putting on his coat and gloves, as he watched the black Lincoln Navigator pull up to a stop beneath the window. The most important person missing from there is the man behind the camera. To me, anyway. His lips brushed Nick's cheek. I'm sorry. I'll call you, I promise. Colton mumbled to the floor and then hurried out. Nick sat staring at the closed door behind him for a moment, then glanced around the office. Colton's office, really, he thought, knowing that it had always been so. As Nick watched the massive SUV sit smoking expectantly in the frozen slush of the circular driveway below, his thoughts wandered back to when he'd first met Colton at a tutoring session which paired new incoming student-athletes with upperclassmen tutors. The University of Alabama treated its football players like prized bulls at the county fair, carefully grooming them with just the right regimen of rigorous training workouts and cushy academics to both toughen them up for the gridiron, but also soft enough to prepare them for their lives of celebrity treatment afterward. College football stars, at least in the SEC, were celebrities. Even if they never made it to the pros, literally thousands of doors opened to them the moment they signed on the dotted line. From the moment they set foot on the field, they were instantly transformed into small-town gods. Like most gods, however, their origins had humble beginnings. Colton Merritt had come from a little town in North Alabama called Jasper. Prior to Colton's rise to the hallowed halls of college quarterback fame, Jasper was known for only two things, coal mines and a local law which allowed a man to beat his wife with a stick no bigger around than his thumb. Colton's father, Travis, a local sheriff's deputy, had taken that law to heart and liberally exercised his right to it by beating the snot out of Colton, his older sister Leslie, and their mother Shelby on a regular basis, especially after Shelby came down with leukemia, a condition which Travis seemed to take as a personal affront, as if his wife had deliberately set out to make his life more difficult by contracting a disease which cruelly wasted her former beauty queen looks and runner's body away to skeletal form. Leslie's response had been to run away at 16, breaking all contact with the family after her mother Shelby passed. Colton was 12 then. He hadn't heard from his sister again for almost 10 years, and by the time he did, it was too late. He was in college, and Leslie was on a slab in a Memphis morgue, dead of a heroin overdose. Fortunately, however, Whatever powers that were gifted Colton with the most athletic genetics his unfortunate gene pool had to offer, this lucky circumstance began sparing him from beatings as early as 10, when it became apparent to his father that his son's primary talent in life lay in his ability to throw a football. 
Being dismissed from the police force after a drunken crash in his squad car a year later gave Travis Merritt, himself a former football standout many moons before, the time to devote himself to pushing his only son through grueling workouts for hours every day after school. Travis refused to allow his son even to eat supper until he'd run at least five miles, even if it were raining or freezing cold. Years later, on their first run together, the far less athletic Nick had begged Colton to slow down. Dizzy and panting for breath, he'd been shocked out of his wits when Colton slapped his face hard and called him a pussy, then apologized profusely. God, I'm, I'm sorry, Nick. I don't know why I did that, Colton had begged as Nick backed away from him, refusing to return his calls for several days. Colton might not have known it, but Nick did then. And at the time, it made him question whether he should check himself from falling for someone who literally had the sensation of pain beaten out of him one too many times. Regardless, although Travis Merritt was a tyrannical bully of a father by any sensible measure of parenting, his methods had worked. By the time he was a sophomore in high school, Colton was six feet four and the starting quarterback at Jasper High. Leading Jasper to their first state championship in decades caught the eye of scouts all over the southeast, but in the end, Colton had chosen the Crimson Tide, partly out of sentimentality and partly because it was a place where perfection was expected, Nick thought. Colton had been raised to be uncomfortable unless striving his hardest for something almost unattainable. He'd fulfilled the rabid expectations of fans and donors by delivering two national championships during his tenure at the university. All of this success on the field was facilitated, as was the case with many college athletes, by chicanery behind the scenes. As part of his work-study job with tutoring services, the senior Nick had been assigned to Colton as a freshman. In their very first study session together, three things had immediately become apparent to Nick. One, Colton Merritt was very bright. Two, Colton was functionally illiterate because of undiagnosed dyslexia. And three, that Colton was stricken with self-loathing because his awareness of the former was completely overshadowed by his shame in the latter. Having to begin very slowly, Nick knew there wasn't time enough to get Colton fully up to speed in his reading before he would become just another flunk-out jock, so Nick ghostwrote all of his papers for the first year or two. Through intentionally overscheduling him with service clubs and extra workouts, and then making up excuses to the faculty that the athletic department was just running him ragged, Nick managed for Colton to take all of his tests as makeups as well. This arrangement gave Nick time to sneak in the copy room and snatch copies of the questions so that he and Colton could go over them enough times that he memorized the answers. By the time Nick started law school, still there in Tuscaloosa, Colton was a junior and marginally able to do most of his work on his own. Although many of his professors wondered at why Colton's grades went down, whereas most improved once they got into their majors. Having too many other worries to occupy their time, however, they merely chalked it up to his athletics being too much of a distraction, as not many football stars were also theater majors, and fewer still were academic superstars. Some were skeptical of Colton's aptitude for the stage, but Nick caught on after observing his first rehearsal. In the theater, Colton could listen carefully to lines being allowed read one time, then immediately commit them to memory without having to endure the embarrassment of having his illiteracy revealed. Not to mention the fact that Colton had a lifetime of experience acting the part of someone he wasn't. Theater gave Colton the freedom to express himself through the guise of acting.
Thus, though they'd seen less of each other once their official tutoring sessions had ended, the pair remained close. A political science major and film studies minor, the athletic young actor and his advocate found they still had a lot to talk about, especially late at night when both of them were drunk. Finally, one evening during the spring, when Colton was a fifth-year senior, Nick was clerking for a local judge, and it happened. They were walking to a bar after the opening night of what would be Colton's last college theatrical production. Having deliberately turned down leading roles in favor of supporting ones and thereby limiting his rehearsals to make plenty of time for football practice, this final spring was Colton's only chance to take center stage, and he'd done so in a big way by directing himself as the lead, Brick, in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Watching his best friend mesmerize the audience that night, Nick had fought back tears. He'd known that he'd had strong feelings for Colton for a long time, but not wanting to wreck things by acting on them, he'd said nothing. Nick had been out for several years by then, and Colton knew it. Although Nick suspected Colton might be gay, too, his short-lived relationships with girls, always the stereotypically beautiful but empty-headed cheerleaders, ended in spectacularly ridiculous flame-outs. His friend had never acted on it, to his knowledge. More importantly, he'd never shown the slightest inclination of anything beyond platonic interest in him. That night, as they walked down the south side of the quad, Colton made a point of bumping into him several times, hard enough to push Nick out into the street. It was a sort of game they played sometimes, acting wobbling drunk and running into each other on purpose. Nick wondered if he'd already been doing shots in the green room after the show before they'd met up. If he had, it must have been fast, because Colton hadn't even changed clothes. He still wore his 50s-style Paul Newman look-alike outfit right out onto the street, and still in full theatrical makeup. As Colton sang the words, Irony and pity over and over again, in imitation of the drunk Bill Gorton character from Sun Also Rises, their mutually favorite novel, Nick decided he wasn't just acting. Colton was actually drunk. About the moment Nick realized this, Colton crashed into his shoulder again, hard enough this time to knock him out into the street, right into the path of a passing car. Nick hadn't had time to see it before Colton grabbed him around the waist, pulling him to safety. As the car rushed past, horn blaring, they fell sprawling on top of each other into the grass on the other side of the street. "'What the hell, Matt?' Nick sputtered, but he didn't get out the phrase before Colton was kissing him, hard on the mouth. It must have lasted at least a minute before he drew back. Sitting up and self-consciously swabbing the remains of smeared grease paint off his face, he looked at Colton. "'Well, that happened,' Colton said." looking at Nick then for the first time with the same pleading expressions that very afternoon. Colton's eyes said just as they had then, Please don't be mad at me. I love you. That night, they left the bar separately so that no one would notice but had met up at Nick's apartment afterward. They kept on that way ever since. Colton got drafted to the Carolina Panthers but only played two less than remarkable seasons before a pair of 300-pound linemen pounced on him in a brutal late hit, snapping his right leg at the knee. Through Nick's sly maneuverings as his attorney, Colton was able to limp through the next season, mostly on the sidelines, before walking away with the full value of his five-year contract. His pro football career over, Colton utilized his golden god meets good old boy looks and mid-level acting abilities to land a gig on a new television show called Ketchup Town, 
filming near Asheville, North Carolina, playing a backwoods mayor of a quaint, Mayberry-like, hilltop tourist town. The show was deemed, quote, as comforting as cornbread and chicken soup by critics and picked up a huge following among the conservative community, who hailed it as, quote, a return to small-town values that are sorely needed in this country. Colton started getting a lot of attention as one of television's hottest young bachelors, but his life remained relatively paparazzi-free, thanks to the less-than-press-conducive environs of Asheville. He and Nick bought historic homes with adjoining backyards, which they restored painstakingly together, and between which their nocturnal comings and goings passed virtually unnoticed. Audiences loved not only Colton as a sort of latter-day Andy Taylor, but also his co-star, a former Miss North Carolina and occasional country singer by the name of Liza Jane Marble as the feisty small-town restaurateur striving to become the next generation's Paula Dean. Not only did the public buy the improbability that Liza Jane's fictional character spent all day toiling in the kitchen of a mountainside gastropub, wearing spike heels, a push-up bra, and flowing hair with perfect balayage, but they also lapped up her series of healthy Mediterranean meat southern cookbooks, all of which was, of course, a complete lie. In fact, the cookbooks were quietly ghostwritten and profit-shared by Nick Gallinus, her editor, and the real-life son from a large family of Greek restaurant owners, none of whom still spoke to him at all. This was partly due to Nick's refusal to return to Birmingham and set up a law practice for the benefit of his family and its business enterprises. Partly, it was also due to the fact that they harbored the sneaking suspicion that their son was somehow funny and thus not really one of them. Most of the time, Nick shed no tears over this loss. He hardly ever thought of them, really, having long ago wrestled out from under the cloak of toxic masculinity and traditionalist familial obligation that his youth had come wrapped in. Yet, despite having shaken off these trappings internally with his birth family, Nick found himself inextricably intertwined with them financially in his chosen one. Thanks to Nick's management as the executive producer, Liza Jane's spin-off Food Network show had been a tremendous success, too. Despite the fact that Liza Jane Marble, former beauty queen, was herself unable even to boil an egg. As Colton's star had risen and Liza Jane's faux foodie career had paralleled it, Nick found himself and his law practice increasingly drawn into their orbit. Nick handled their finances, managed their careers, and inadvertently became the catalyst for the creation of the one person who would tie the trio together forever, Beth. It was Nick who had first proposed the advertising sponsorship of In the Kitchen with Liza Jane to Warren Wade, the televangelist. Little did Nick know, or then care, that Liza Jane had grown up as the typical Baptist minister's naughty daughter, or that putting her in such close proximity with the sly womanizer would quickly result in a torrid affair that produced a child and threatened the squeaky-clean image of both shows, along with Nick and Colton's interests in them. When Wade pressured Liza Jane to have an abortion, she balked. Apparently, the one part of her purported piousness that was genuine was her belief that abortion was murder. Refusing to have one then, Liza Jane instead came to Colton and Nick, crying, and with a plan already in mind behind her crocodile tears. Having always known about their relationship and the need to keep it secret for everyone's mutual benefit, it had been Liza Jane who'd proposed that she and Colton get married. 
then Nick could act as her agent and help find a way to move her food show to New York. There, she would parlay her success into fulfilling her lifetime dream of becoming a soap opera queen. Given the lengthy filming obligations of a typical daytime soap, Liza Jane reasoned that she would only have a limited amount of time to return to North Carolina to shoot the next season of Ketchup Town, leaving the two of them virtually alone at last. Nick had thought the arrangement made financial sense, yet Colton agreed for a different reason that Nick hadn't figured out until later. Beth's birth was the only way that Colton could keep up the ruse of a heterosexual marriage, continue his real relationship with Nick, and still become a father, which was something he'd always wanted. Only later, when he'd accidentally slipped in anger and called Beth by a different name than her own, did Colton ever mention his older sister, Leslie, the one who died of an overdose. Though they'd known each other for several years by then, Colton hadn't shared with Nick his grief at going to the morgue in Memphis alone, his father being too pissed drunk and ornery to accompany him. Nick knew that having a daughter was a kind of redemption for Colton, a way to save the women he couldn't. At least, that had been the intention. And so, Ketchup Town ran for four more seasons, until Liza Jane, who curiously continued to insist on using her maiden name of Marble, much to the puzzlement of her decidedly non-feminist fans, quote, left to pursue other opportunities and focus on her marriage and family. This was, of course, a cover-up, but it worked spectacularly. Then known only as Liza Jane Marble, she became the new Queen of Daytime, and their daughter Beth, in about age five and just starting school, moved to Asheville to live with Colton for good. There, Colton was swiftly elected mayor in the first ever political campaign he tried, because who wouldn't vote for the handsome television mayor of Darling Ketchup Town? Colton served three terms and was just beginning to consider the benefits of a quiet early retirement with his partner rather than seeking a fourth, when he got a call from Vice President Tamika Allery Graves. America needs a man like Colton Merritt, she'd said, to help them heal from the untimely loss of President Brandon, a likable liberal moderate who could relate to the values of small-town conservative America. Colton had said he'd think about it, which meant no at first. Then he found out that Beth had gotten accepted to RISD, which changed his opinion to maybe... The Rhode Island School of Design was expensive, and he'd heard that Graves intended for her summer White House to be in Newport, where she'd bought one of the historic cottages. Working with her there instead of in Washington would allow Colton to keep an eye on Beth, who was beginning to show signs of her struggles that followed. Finally, Nick had said he might as well, because they were too young to retire anyway. Nick's acceptance of the idea sealed the deal. Colton had been sworn in with Liza Jane and Beth by his sides and Nick in the audience. They hadn't needed to discuss why. And so, there he goes, Nick thought, as the SUV pulled out of sight. He picked up the digital frame and repositioned it on the desktop. Sitting down in Colton's chair, Nick opened his email and began to make a list of meetings to push back until after Christmas. Behind every great man, he thought, knitting his brows. If only they knew. This is the end of chapter five. Be sure to tune in next week for our next chapter of Skeleton's Blood here on the Haunted Muse podcast.
until next time, this is Vivian Catfield reminding you to remain ever watchful because you never can tell someone or something somewhere out there just might be watching you. Thank <laughs> you.